0: All right, it's good to see all your faces this morning. I'm wrapping up a sermon series that we've been doing that we're calling Sabbath and Savoring Life. And then next week, Andy Deeb, who you saw up here playing the guitar. Where are you, Andy? Oh, out in the hallway is going to be preaching. So Andy has been in seminary out at San Francisco Theological Seminary and so we thought we would get him up here to preach before he goes back for the fall semester. So I'm looking forward to hearing you, Andy. Everybody be here, we'll be good. So a little over a decade ago, before I moved to Asia for a few years, I was here in Ann Arbor, I was between jobs and I was asking a lot of questions of God. I was single and there's only so long that you can live on your savings when you only have one income in the household and I was feeling a little bit adrift. I'd been working in business for almost 10 years at that point and I felt pretty successful at doing it, but I was bored and I was trying to figure out what I needed to do next in order to move forward with what I was sensing was a vocational call to serve the church. So in short, I was really in the midst of a big life transition. I was in the middle of switching careers. And so I was reading the Bible one day and I felt like the Holy Spirit started to talk to me through what I was reading. Now, I don't think every verse in the Bible is one that you read and it applies to everybody, you know, for all time. But every now and then, and I feel like it's maybe especially when I'm in times of transition, when I'm reading scripture, it feels like something will just sort of pop out at me. You know, like there'll be an element that's highlighted and it sort of sticks with me and I'm like, what's going on there? So I don't remember exactly which passage I was looking at, but it was like this one that I'm going to read to us from Exodus 23. This is verses 10 and 11. It says, for six years you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among you make good food from it and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyards and with your olive grove. So that part about leaving the fields unplowed and untended every seven years was the part that was really sticking out to me. So we're going to hold that thought for a second Because a few weeks back when I started this series, we started to talk about the Sabbath, um, how it was like a subversive act when it was first instituted in the Bible, right? The Sabbath just means one day of rest that the Hebrew people, the Jewish people have kept up even to this day where you do no work one day of the week. And that when that was instituted, it was to mark a stark contrast between the never ending seven day a week slavery and production quotas that had been demanded of those people when they were slaves in the Egyptian empire, Right, so when God took the Jewish people who had been slaves and he rescued them from the Egyptian empire, he was saying, you are to do things differently. Right, this was part of their discipleship as a people. You were no longer to act as slaves, but you're to rest and you're to enjoy life and you're to trust that I, your God, will take care of you. Right, so taking this complete day of rest once a week was like a liberating act for them as a people. But in that passage I just read, we see an additional element don't wait, is simply having this one day a week as rest. It's this letting your field's life fallow every seven years, right? So you've got six years of planting and harvesting and then one year of just planting nothing. So when I was reading that bit about 10 years ago, I was particularly struck by this idea of having a year to life fallow and felt like God was like kind of telling me he wanted me to do the same, only spiritually speaking. And I was a little bit like, what does that mean?" but it kept coming back to my mind. It was almost like you know, like an earworm, life fallow, life fallow. I thought, does that mean that I shouldn't do anything? I mean, I'm assuming, I was between jobs. I was like, I'm assuming I should still apply for jobs and work and do all of those things. Was this like a warning from God? Like, you're not gonna have work for a year, so just sit tight. That's not what it was. But, and we were in the middle of the economic collapse at that point and my PR skills were not in high demand. So I was asking God, I was like, so why is this phrase, life fallow, sticking out to me? Am I reading something into nothing just because I feel a little bit tired and like I could use some rest? And I felt like through that time, God showed me that one, yeah, it was him speaking to me and that I just needed to slow down and that there's tremendous benefit to spending a season just waiting on God to give us directions. You know, like many of us, if we've been in transition, we want to sort of you know, jump the gun a little bit. Like, I know me anyway, and maybe this is you too, but I feel almost like a racehorse that's like, sometimes when I get in my mind what's coming next, I'm like, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm like, I want to apply to schools. I want to do this, I want to do that. And it felt like God was just holding me back because the time wasn't quite right. And I felt like God was inviting me to be less hurried so that he could do some work in me before I could take that next step and actually be successful at it. And that work only could have been done by me being able to slow down. I had to learn to rest and to receive, and I had to learn to trust God's timing and God's provision. After years of being self-sufficient and independent as a young 20-year-old, I had to learn how to be cared for in a community of people. I had to learn how God provides for my day-to-day needs. So these ideas of resting and savoring life and waiting on God, these are not like trivial spiritual tools. They aren't like the fluffy stuff that we talk about in the summer, you know, to think about resting and stuff. These are like essentials. I think that if we don't know how to rest and how to wait, it's almost like being a surgeon that's going into the operating room without a scalpel, right? And God is inviting us to learn these skills so that we can mature spiritually And some of that happens, actually a lot of spiritual maturation takes place in the time of simmering and waiting. And as I'm looking around the room, I'm thinking, gosh, yeah, I see people who have had like babies in the last couple of years and people who have had health issues. And I feel like sometimes those are times when God is speaking pretty clearly to us and bringing comfort to us in our lives. So I would just invite you to just be listening for that. So I'm gonna read the verse again, only this time I'm going to read down one verse further in it. And I want you to notice the benefits to the animals and to the land, as well as to the poor here. So Exodus 2310 to 12. It says, for six years, you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people might get food from it and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and with your olive grove. And then the author here ties this idea of the land lying fallow to the Sabbath. It says, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you might be refreshed. Now we're going to come back to the animals in the land, and I'll spend some time on those, but I want to note just right off the bat that there were slaves. And I think it's interesting that just as the Hebrew people had been slaves for generations and generations in Egypt, that once they were freed, they turned right back around and they took slaves. And I thought I would be greatly remiss to not at least acknowledge that fact. You know, sometimes I think we pastors have a tendency to sort of skip over some of these verses. I thought, maybe I'll pick a different one so I don't have to explain that. But I think we just have to acknowledge it and face it head on and face that it was messy that... The idea that sometimes while justice is being pushed forward by one group of people, that it's sometimes at the expense of the others or sometimes these other people are suffering at the hands of these same people who are pushing forward justice over there. And it was messy for the ancient Jews just as it is messy for us. Like I think about people sometimes who are fighting for women's equality in the workplace and sometimes they don't acknowledge that people of color also have challenges that are specific in the workplace, right? And I think that's a bit of what's going on here in Exodus. I think the text is a little bit blind to its own tension in this way. But that being said, I still think that there's some wisdom to be found in thinking about how the Hebrew people thought about orienting their community, and so let's try and find some of that. I think first, the directive to let the land lie fallow every seven years reflects God's concern for the poor. God's interested in continuing to provide for the landless people, right? People who didn't have land would have been considered poor, who needed access to food. So during normal years, for the ancient Hebrews, what they would do is the farmers would go through and they would glean. They would take their machetes or their knives and they'd go over their wheat or their barley or their legumes, right? And their people would go through and they would... Chop. I don't know if you've ever seen people actually harvest a field using a machete. Now, some of you have, I know when I was in China, I watched it and the people are fast. Like they've got this stuff down, but when you're going quickly, you're also leaving behind some, you know, some of it kind of drops and you're missing little patches or whatever. And the idea is it's faster to do that and then go back over it a second time and pick up the second gleanings. Well, we know that the ancient Israelites, they were instructed that they were not to go back over their fields. And that was so that the widows and the orphans and the foreigners and the poor could come. And that was the food that they could then use. If you've read the book of Ruth, that's what the widows Ruth and and, uh, Naomi were doing when they went into Boaz's field. This was how the ancient Israelites cared for their poor. Well, what are they gonna do on these years when nobody's planting anything? Well, God's like, well, actually... There will be um, you know, seeds that continue to sprout up and you're just not to touch them. And the fields are going to continue to produce their own fruit. And so people who, can, who need it can come and they can kind of glean from that raggedy harvest while the landowners were to leave it alone and they were to use what had been put in storage over the last six years, right? So God is making sure that people who are not able to store up sustenance still have access to food. I think one of the problems too here that has plagued our modern era has been a really self-defeating anthropocentrism. I don't know if I said that right, right? Meaning that we see humans as the center of everything. We see humans as the most important element in all of creation. But humans aren't the center of attention in this scripture. And when I read passages like this, just even with my own mind, I know that I immediately latch onto the parts that have to do with maybe me or people that I know, perhaps apply to other humans. And so I read it and I'm like, oh yeah, this is about human rest. We're to make sure we have rest. We're to make sure that we don't work every seven years. I notice the effects on like the slaves and the foreigners. And I find myself musing about how frustrating it is that God and God's people seem to move so slowly in bringing about justice and dignity for all humans. And that's what I'm getting out of the verse. But then I realize that this brief passage from Exodus is actually really remarkable for its much wider breadth of ethical concern. Right? It's thinking a lot more holistically than many of us are taught to think as post-enlightenment individualistic people. Right? It's considering the wild animals, and it's considering the fields themselves. So I have to confess, you know, it's saying that the wild animals may also eat what's grown in those unplowed fields. So I feel a little bit of tension with that idea. I see Rachel's eyes getting big. She knows where I'm going. Those of you who know us, Rachel and I have been in a long-standing battle with the groundhogs in our yard ever since we bought this house. Like This is our third summer there. Rachel wants to slaughter them. <laughs> she, she grows the garden, I mean, that's fair enough. You know, I was a little bit more like, but we've, we've been given all of this abundance. Like maybe we should just share some of our abundance no 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 yeah so I've come around you know marriage (laughs) and plus the groundhogs ate the dill she planted this year and that really really irked me so you know I've gotten on to fully support Rachel's quest but then I read something like this and I'm like I don't know like in light of this should we at least think about providing some food from our abundance for the wild animals like God did No, it's okay. I I won't go there. That feels like I'm like abusing. Ah, no, that's no good. (laughs) But I say that to just, I actually say that to point out a much larger point. And that is that there's a problem with taking one small verse of scripture and applying it to all people for all time. That I think that's a misuse of scripture. It's not a good thing to do. You can look at the whole and see other ideas, right? The ancient Hebrews killed animals. They ate animals. It doesn't seem to be like a general issue with animal life. But that said, I do think it's worth a general consideration that the animals of the earth are God's creatures just as much as we are, and noting that God does show a deep and abiding interest in their well-being. Is that fair? Yeah. You know, there's a German theologian, this isn't in my notes, but his name's Helmut Thilicke, and I liked a phrase that he used. He said, he calls it the solidarity of the sixth day. And what he says is that in the Hebrew scriptures that the humans and the mammals were created on the same day and that that is to help us realize the connection that we have with the animals, that we share the breath of life. And so that's that's actually part of our spirituality as well. You know, I've been thinking quite a bit um, this week about just, well, you know, there's all this talk about Al Gore's and Inconvenient Sequel and thinking about the world around us. Hi, Maurice. And I I was actually talking with some friends, Andrea was there and a couple of my other friends that don't go to this church and Rachel, and I was like, what should I preach on this week? Savoring life, savoring life. And my sweet atheist friend piped up and she's like, well, what about all life? What about like, do Christians care about animals and the planet? And I was like, well, yeah, of course we do. So this one, this is for my friend Aaron, who wants to make sure that we Christians also care about the animals and the planet around us. You know, our industrial way of life has not been good, either for wild or domesticated animals. And the vast majority of the 10 billion animals, 10 billion animals slaughtered in the U.S. last year were raised in massive confinement operations that gave them very little room to move and very little access to light or to fresh air. Iowa, I found out, is the nation's largest producer of pork. And the total number of pigs in Iowa is 20 million, which outnumbers humans seven to one. That's how many pigs are in Iowa. And the overwhelming majority of these pigs are locked in stalls. They don't provide them enough room to even turn around. And that's where they spend most of their lives. And there's similar conditions that affect chickens as well. I've discovered this new theologian that I'm kind of digging. His name is Norman Wurzba. And he's a theologian of, uh, he's a professor of theology and ecology at Duke Divinity. So his job is to look at the ethics of creation care. And he writes this in a book called Living the Sabbath. He says, chickens are crammed eight at a time into wire crates no bigger than a drawer of a filing cabinet. And the crates are then stacked on top of each other in darkness, which means that the chickens that are higher up defecate on those below. And as a result, illness and anxiety run rampant, and so heavy use of antibiotics are required to keep the fowl healthy enough until slaughter. And the people that are working in these industrial slaughterhouses are not treated much better than the animals that they're killing for our consumption. You know, the meatpacking industry is one of the most dangerous in the nation. It has been for most of our history. Actually, if you think of like Upton Sinclair, and it relies on cheap and disposable labor frequently furnished by desperate immigrants. And I think that no creature should have to live this way, neither worker nor animal. And I'm not saying these things to make us feel bad about eating meat. You know, I, I just finished a five-year stint of being a vegetarian, actually a pescatarian, so I ate some fish. I may or may not retake that up, but like meat's great. Like I have so enjoyed eating meat these last six months. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, mean, I ate cheeseburgers, I've been eating bacon, we made pulled pork last week, it's been delightful. And I also recognize, having been somewhat poor in part of my adult life, that buying ethically sourced meat and dairy and eggs is a privilege that not everybody can afford. I have had times in my 20s where I was lucky enough to just get, you know, food to eat for the week, much less to think about, like, having wild hot Atlantic salmon or grass-fed, hormone-free cows. But I would say that for those of us who are in a place in our lives where we can sacrifice a little bit more for food that seeks the good of animals we eat, should perhaps consider it a spiritual discipline and duty to do so. And I would say that includes hunting for food. Like I'm not a hunter, but I do have tremendous respect for people who are able to go and look their dinner in the eyes and honor the life of the animal that is giving their life in order for us to have life. You know, there is a, something that's lost in our food system where we are so removed when we go to the grocery store from the idea of taking an animal life for our own say, for giving life to our bodies, that we're just, we don't even think about it. I don't think about it. And there's one perspective on the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. So the sacrificial system was, you know, they had like a tabernacle, the ancient peoples did, and they would bring different animals and they would sacrifice them to God. And I have lots of thoughts on that. But I read this one rabbi, he's a reformed Jewish rabbi, who was helping me think about it from even a different perspective. And he said that he saw the sacrificial system as being about the sacredness of animal life. And he said that the people would take an animal and when they did that, they would try and ensure the minimal amount of pain was used so that it wouldn't suffer when it died. And then when it did, they would use their hands and they would ceremonially and ritually open the animal and take out the innards. And he's like, in doing that, it reminded them of this solidarity of the sixth day, It reminded them of their own mortality. It reminded them that we bleed the way these animal bleeds. And he said, maybe it's worth considering that those animal sacrifices and the food that they provided the people were actually less barbaric on some level than the way that we treat a lot of animals that we eat today. So the instruction to leave the land fallow for a year took into consideration the poor and the wild animals who might be wandering by looking for food. And third, it considered the land itself We know that land that is over-farmed and overused becomes unproductive. That's part of why we rotate crops. And the Bible counsels us that overuse and overworking doesn't bring life. There's a reading from Exodus 31 that elaborates a little bit more on this idea in connection with the Sabbath. And I'm just gonna read it because there's, there's like a really disturbing part of it to me. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. And this will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy or set apart. Observe the Sabbath because it is set apart to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days, work is to be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, oh, they're repeating it, is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh, he rested and was refreshed. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I do not remember that part about being put to death for work on the Sabbath. I mean, I'm working right now. (laughs) Am I in trouble? (laughs) Do you guys have stones? And it makes me like, what kind of God gives the death threat? Much less for like, resting. I mean, how many of you parents go in and your kid's like sitting there playing video games and you're like, if you don't rest harder than that, you're in trouble. Like, what, you know? But I don't read this here as being about like this little mean God father who's looking to come and kill his kids for not resting, but more as a passage that's meant to convey the idea that by never taking time to rest, we might work ourselves to death, right? That not resting results in death. And is it possible that our own work schedules and relentless lifestyles are working not only ourselves, but others to death? And is it possible that our industrious and industrial way of life is working our planet to death? And perhaps death is the natural consequence of overworking ourselves and others and the world around us. So Wendell Berry, who's a a lovely writer, fiction writer, he raises, well, not all fiction, but he raises these kinds of questions in a foreword to living the Sabbath. And he says this, he says, we're uh, we're living at the climax of industrialism. The cheap fossil fuels on which our world has grown dependent are now becoming expensive, both in money and in lives. The industrial economy, by definition, must never rest. Whatever we have in whatever quantity is not enough. There's no such thing as enough. Six work days in a week are not enough. We need a seventh. We need an eighth. We cannot stop to eat. Thank God for cars. We dine as we drive over yet another paved farm. Everybody is weary, and there is no rest. Now, There may be a little hyperbole there, but I think it's true that there's very little that is sustainable about our current way of life. And according to Paul Hawken in The Ecology of Commerce, every single day, the global economy burns the amount of fossil fuel that it took nature 10,000 days to create. Think about that. Every day, we consume an amount of fossil fuel that it took the planet 27 years to create. Now, I I know it's not that helpful always to throw a bunch of statistics around, right? One, we won't remember them, and two, if I were out there, I'd probably be Googling to make sure they were right. (laughs) But I do think that given the focus of these Exodus texts on agriculture, it's worthwhile to reflect on how our industrial way of life is affecting the land and the animals and the people who are working to consume the food that we're producing and its effect on the poor. And while we've made some important strides in the U.S. regarding soil and water conservation, we are still losing topsoil faster than nature can replenish it. Our applications of fertilizers and pesticides are polluting waterways, contributing to huge dead zones like the one in the Gulf. I don't know if you guys saw, but three days ago, NPR ran an article about the Gulf of Mexico and said that the dead zone there is larger than it's ever been. It's bigger than the size of New Jersey. And what that means is that there's an area of water that has so little oxygen that fish can't live in it. And it's all the cause of all of the pesticide and fertilizer runoff from the Mississippi River flowing down into the Gulf of Mexico. The Great Barrier Reef in Australia was declared dead this year. There's actually a really poignant article. I think, I don't think Amanda Rota here. She might be teaching Sunday school. She posted it. It was from a marine biologist. And he wrote the article as if it were an obituary. And it was really powerful. And he said, it's dead, it's completely gone because of the bleaching from the warming waters. And in addition, our land use practices have destroyed and fragmented so many habitats that we're experiencing an unprecedented rate of species extinction um, extinction and loss of biodiversity in the world. And so Wurzba, that theologian from Duke, he argues that we will not be able to abandon our destructive industrial way of life until we recover the discipline and the practice of Sabbath. We will not be able to abandon our destructive way of life until we recover the discipline and practice of Sabbath. And he says it's not sufficient to just sort of ritually recognize one day a week. He said that's fine, right? That's part of how we train ourselves spiritually. But he says this, he says rather the key to Sabbath observance is that we participate regularly in the delight that marked God's own response to a creation wonderfully made. That on the seventh day of creation, God stepped back to rest and to rejoice in a creation that was very, very good. And he said, we have to delight in nature. We have to be awed by it to the point where we can't stand at our deepest point, deep in our gut, we cannot stand to see it destroyed, even at great personal sacrifice. And he says, to reach that point, we have to learn how to rest. We have to learn how to wait. We have to learn how to be in this sort of mystical space of being in awe, of feeling at one with the animals and with the creation around us. And that when we reach that point where we can really savor all of life and how it all interconnects, that starts on an individual level. And he said, then that translates into how we perceive the wider world. Integrating gratitude and praise and rest and letting the Holy Spirit transform our minds so that we see the entire creation, not just humans, but the entire of creation as God given, is so essential to our spiritual practice. Knowing that the earth is not our possession, but rather we are its priestly caretakers. This is our responsibility. It was the first command given to the humans in Scripture. It is our spiritual and sacred responsibility to tend. And steward the creation, which is crucial to our even having life going forward on the planet. So, with that said, there is a movie, an inconvenient sequel, that's playing this week. And I just thought of this this morning. I was like, I want to see that. And it happens to be playing at the Michigan. So, Rachel and I are going to go at 7.15 on Tuesday night. And I would just say, if anybody wants to join us, come. We'll be there at 7.05. If we've already gone in, come find us. And if you don't have the money, we've got some extra little free tickets that we would be happy to donate to you as well. Um, So with that said, let's do a little meditation. I know I was a little bit more political-ish. I don't know if it's political, but a little more intense maybe than I sometimes am. But man, as Christians, we need to be talking about care for the earth. We need to be recognizing mystical connection. We need to be recognizing that if we're not praying and feeling and experiencing God as the connector of all living things, that we are missing out, not only on a great spiritual truth and experience, but on what we're supposed to be doing in this world. That's where a lot of our, right, our motivation, our power comes from. So with that said, yeah, I'm like, I want to preach it now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we usually close our services with a couple of minutes of silence and or guided meditation. And it doesn't have to be completely silent, babies, people make noise, we're not worried about that. But what I want you to do today is I just, I'm gonna start by one, just letting us settle down a little bit. And then as you settle down, picture a place that for you just makes your heart balloon up with gratitude, out of beauty. So just say, come Holy Spirit, take some deep breaths and start to get your mind into that space. Start to experience, if you can in your mind, just some of the sensory elements of being in that space. Like, is there wind? Are there smells? Is it warm? Is it cold? What's it sound like? And in this space what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out a psalm Psalm 8 I ask that you keep picturing that space and as much as we're able just in this sort of limited time and environment try and experience yourself as really connected connected to that natural space connected to a God who mystically holds it all together it says that In him we live and move and have our being, that all things are held together in God. This is mystical stuff. But as you can, try and open yourself to feeling this connection. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is humankind that you are mindful of them? What are human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and you've crowned them with glory and with honor. And you've made humans rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And let's just sit in silence for about a minute with that. And maybe ask that God just birth a sense of that responsibility that's been given to the humans over nature. Jesus, we are grateful for the beautiful earth, the beautiful playground, the beautiful sustenance that you have given us. And I ask that you would help us find times of feeling connected both to it and to you all in sort of like one mystical connection, Lord. And out of that space, you will help breathe rest and joy and delight in us. We thank you for being a God who allows us to rest. We thank you for being a God who works in those in-between times, in those transition periods, in those times where we've been sick, or we have a lot of anxiety about work or about our family or our health or our kids' health. Lord, we ask that that just simmering presence, that time where you feel like you're just waiting, God, I ask that that would just be spiritually productive because I know it's one of the hardest times to go through if that's where you're at. Lord, I would just pray out over the people who are in that space, God, that they would be blessed, that you would be comforting them, that you would be speaking to them, that you would hold their hand and tell them that it's okay in the waiting and that you're there with them. or that you would teach us to trust your timing in all things. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.